1: Good evening. Is everybody comfortable? (coughs) Happy?
0: Content? Awake? I always feel like after we bow, at the end of our meditation session, so happy when I look up and there's other people in the room because I spend a lot of time in here doing this alone (laughs) and um, it's good to do solo practice but it's also really nice to sit with other people and uh, it helps keep the fire going just like geese, you know they fly together or it's like when you watch um Bicycling in the velodrome, or wherever um, people bike in packs, it's more aerodynamic. So this is more aerodynamic kind of practice, and um, and the interesting thing about practicing with other people is it also changes energetically uh, the way that we're with other people, because most of the day we're competing with people, fighting with people, negotiating with people, you know, and it's like. There's me, and then there's people. Especially if you're introverted. Um, And, you know, one of the core teachings of yoga is just that you're not the me that you think you are. And this is a bit hard for people to swallow sometimes. Because you feel real, but I feel real. And there's nothing wrong with that, but the problem is, is that you feel really real. And I feel really real. And Tang feels really, really real. And I feel really, really, really real. But what happens is if you, if it's always you feeling real, then it's like you make a circle and you have ideas that this is me. And to have the idea that this is a me, you have to set A universe over there. Because you have to objectify something. You objectify other people, you know, and then it's like me against the universe. (laughs) Who's going to (laughs) win? The universe always wins, right? Because it's just a conceptualization. Does this make sense? And, um, the yogic response is that it's. There's nothing wrong with feeling real, but it's just that you and I are equally real. So even if you feel really, really real, um, you're just as really, really real as the wind is really, really real. And you both have um, uh, the realization at some level in the psyche that because everything is equally real, you're not the most important player. You're not going to win against the universe. Um, because everybody is an excess of you. The whole world is an excess of you. One of the ways that yoga teaches this is that the background of any one thing is every other thing. It's your background. That's how far back your past goes. But it's also how far, how deep your present is. Because you're sustained by everything now. Mm-hmm. Just like. If you're a doctor, you ask somebody about their case history, it doesn't make any sense. Because a person's background, aside from their linguistic definition, is actually made up of the foreground of their experience. So, uh, good luck. Defining yourself doesn't make any sense. Is anybody here trying to define themselves? Yes? Yes? Let me define you a little bit with lighting. (laughs) Mm. Um, I wanted to read from uh, the Yoga Sutra, chapter 2. Next week we have our five day intensive here, so basically (coughs) what that entails is uh, from Monday to Friday, some of you have done this course before, from Monday to Friday. We practice all day long. So we come at eight o'clock, we sit together in here, and then we go to the temple next door, we practice asana for three hours, and we come back in here and eat lunch. And then um, after lunch we sit, we chant, we go through the Yoga Sutra. And so always the week before I realize, Oh my god, in a few days there'll be people coming here from Paris and Calgary and Denver and what are we going to do? So it happened to be this afternoon. Always pull out the yoga sutra and there's always something. So um, that's also advertising. I encourage you <laughs> to come um, and do that practice with us which we do every season. And uh, it's a really wonderful way to build community and also to do to deepen one's practice. Um, This is the second chapter. So those of you that are familiar with uh, the beginning of the second chapter, especially if you've read that really interesting book called The Inner Tradition of Yoga, it deals... (laughs) Did I just say that? The Inner Tradition of Yoga. It deals in the first six chapters with the first lines of the second chapter of the Yoga Sutra, which are the five kleshas, Right after that, here's what Patanjali says. In their subtle form, these causes of suffering are subdued by seeing where they come from. In their gross form, as patterns of consciousness, they are subdued through meditative absorption. Most people just stick those lines. But actually, for the meditator, these are really, really important lines. Um, but I'm going to read them backwards because it's a little bit more interesting. Um, Because he always deals with the subtle first and then the gross. Mm -hmm. For most of us, we're dealing with the gross first and then the subtle. So, in the gross form, what arises in awareness are patterns of consciousness. And they're subdued through meditative absorption. Okay? So, one of the ways we can understand that is... Um, that consciousness, and it appears in six different forms, feelings, what are the six forms that consciousness appears in? Feelings, uh, sensations, um, no, those are the skandhas. So, what are the sense organs? Eyes. Okay, so an eye, what's an example of eye consciousness?
1: Images.
0: Images, sure, they can be inside. The outside images, mm-hmm. uh, green color. Mm-hmm. What's another sense organ?
2: Hearing. hearing.
0: Hearing. So what's an example of hearing consciousness? Con- sound. Um, <coughs> taste, touch, and so yeah. on. What smell? What's the sixth sense organ?
1: The mind. The mind. So what's
0: an example of mind consciousness? A thought. Give me an example of a thought. Come on. My leg hurts. Yeah, okay. So the point is that those are, those appear as patterns of consciousness. They have name and they have form. Right? They might not have substantiality, like the form might not have mass, like a thought, for example. But nevertheless, it's recognizable because it appears in a pattern. Right? And so what we're doing is we're noticing, like fireworks, the way the pattern arises. Um, And then once we notice a piece or a part or a pattern, we come back to, um, in this case, the feeling of breathing. right? And that's it. And as you deepen your ability to stay with the feeling of breathing... Those patterns actually start to, he uses the term subdue, we'll say, chill out. Okay? Have you noticed this? That you stay with the breath over and over and over again, and then the patterns themselves start to chill out. Okay? And in some instances, I say mostly on retreat, they actually stop. And believe it or not, there are times when your thoughts will stop. I remember this happening to me on retreat where it was the end of the retreat and it was time to do something I don't even remember what we were supposed to do but it was something like you know pack up whatever and I just remember walking up some stairs and walking up the stairs there were no thoughts no thoughts the day before every time my mind started going silent every time I heard a word a lyric a song came up and related to that word
1: it's the strangest
0: thing so it's like someone would say i'm going out for a walk and then i was noticing like the word walk and then i would hear like lou reed or whatever (laughs) (laughs) you know and it was like and i was it was like this game that was happening in the mind where the mind was just plugging every word into a song lyric that it knew you go a little bit crazy on retreat. <laughs> um, <and>
1: <laughs> no,
0: no <person> <laughs> but I remember on the last day walking up the stairs and there were no thoughts. And I had this feeling of like lightness, like I was like just bouncing up the stairs. And I remember and it lasted the whole way up the stairs. And it was the first time, I think, in my life, that I didn't have a thought. Has anybody ever had this mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. Just and, and there's awareness of it. Noticing, there's nothing there. And um, this tends to happen in meditation at the beginning, when you're not meditating. So it's like you get up from the cushion, or you start the walking meditation, or you start making the food, and then this kind of thing tends to happen, because you're not looking for it. Right? Um, what Patanjali is saying here is interesting, though, is that the patterns of consciousness, they happen in patterns like constellations so they're easy to recognize and when they're recognized we come back to the movement of breathing and whatever's there falls away and then another one shows up and another one and if you can stay focused on the breath then the breath creates a feedback loop in the nervous system and then the mind also starts to chill out because the prana the energy in the breath and the chitta, the consciousness are two ends of the same stick. So as one starts to settle, the other starts to settle. You all know this, right? Sort of? A little bit? This is the hypothesis. Is this happening for you? For anybody? A little bit. Okay. But now but so Patanjali calls that actually the gross form of consciousness, right? Because that is the name and the form that it's a recognizable pattern that's showing up. And that's the beginning of working with Dukkha, per the beginning of working with suffering, is starting to notice how if you come back over and over and over again, when you're established in the breath, the thought patterns themselves, or any pattern of consciousness, tends to chill out. Okay. And we all know that it's so much easier to relate to what's happening when the, the volume's not turned up, you know. And in a way, it's kind of like um, if you know that there are particular junk patterns. We were talking about this in yoga class earlier. That there's junk food that you can eat, but there's also junk thought. And most of the time, our neuroses are like junk thought—too sweet. Repetitive, We know them. And so what the mindfulness is doing, it's like taking the dead end sign and putting it at the beginning of the street. Because most of the time it's like the mind takes the dead end sign and puts it at the end of the street. What's the use of that? You get to the end of the street, oh, dead end. And you do it all day.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, So the meditation is like bringing the sign up to the front of the street. Um, but the karma, the momentum, doesn't want the sign up there. Because that's the nature of momentum. Does this make sense? I heard a song on the radio by Nico Case, lyrics, and uh, the lyric in the song today I was listening to it was Momentum for the sake of momentum. Stayed with me. Momentum for the sake of momentum. Which is kind of like desire operates like this, right? Like the thing that desire loves the most is just desire. The object is unnecessary. So this is what the mindfulness is doing. It's pulling the dead end up here. So, oh, thinking, back to breath. Oh, whatever loop you've got that's predominant. Back to the breathing. How that's really practical is that then, during the day, when you're going for the cigarette, or it's midnight and you're going for your ninth dessert, you have something to come back two, that anchors you in the present moment, other than the momentum of the habit energy. Okay? And so Patanjali is saying, that's how you work with the suffering that's created by the habit energies in the mind. That's how you work with it. But he calls that, that's just the gross form, he calls it. Is this clear? Mm-hmm. But then he says, there's a subtle form. Whoops. Whoops. I've read this book many times (laughs) (laughs) I don't even need the page numbers (laughs) so in their gross form as patterns of consciousness they're subdued through meditative absorption but listen to this now in their subtle form these causes of suffering are subdued by seeing where they come from
1: a little
0: play here by seeing where they come from those of you that have been studying um, Buddhist psychology with me over the over the year, we know that in the mindfulness, uh, four foundations of mindfulness, one of the things the Buddha teaches is that you watch the arising of a thought or a feeling, but also the passing away. So here Patanjali is doing exactly the same thing. He's saying that these patterns are arising out of something, and then passing away. This is so cool, right? Because then you start to see that whatever it is you're noticing, it has no essence. It has no substance. It's totally transient. And it's built out of memory, association, language, culture, and the force of karma, which is not just your actions, but the actions of the culture, all the words that ever been, have ever been spoken, all the chairs that you've ever sat in, they all influence who you are in this moment. And they influence what's showing up right now. But the pattern itself has no inherent substance. So it's built on all these conditions that are falling away. But what happens is, is, as soon as there's a pattern that's repetitive, it constellates the karmic movement in the mind-body, which was what we call memory, and then we associate to it, and invest in what's arising, and then refer it back to a me, which is an objectification, and then we make it real, and it's about me. Yeah? But I'm just saying that's a little bit more subtle to notice, okay? But I think that most of you, once you can find a little calmness in the meditation practice, you can start to notice that whatever is moving through awareness, it doesn't refer back to a self, okay? But when we say self, it's not just that it doesn't refer back to a me, but it doesn't have a self. In other words, it doesn't have an identity, it's just a phenomenon. And this is such a different way of relating to what arises in awareness because usually we, we focus on the fact that it has content and it means something. It has a value. And the value is just what we, what we invest in it. It doesn't have value. This, this wall doesn't have value. The value is what we invest in it, so to speak. Are we together on this? So now he's going to talk about the karmic piece. The, so these causes of suffering are the root source of actions. And I love this part. This is the clearest definition of karma. Each action, so this is any action that's ever been taken deposits a latent impression deep in the mind to be activated and experienced later in this birth or lie hidden awaiting a future one. Shall I read that again? Okay. The causes of suffering are the root source of action. Okay? So, in the source of action, the causes of suffering are built into that. Each, so now he explains it. Each action deposits a latent impression deep in the mind. So let's stop there. Um, have any of you ever been in an argument with a lover? <laughs> <laughs> ever? No. Okay. In Parkdale, it's like happens all the time. You can watch it all day on the screen. <laughs> So, if somebody says something to you, a feeling shows up, right? And then immediately you invest in that feeling. It's about me because of them. Subject, object, which is real conceit, right? Kind of entitlement, you know? Not only do you own that feeling, but it's because of them that you feel this way. Okay? So, then you punch them in the face. Okay? And your, your reaction is an action that now deposits a latent impression, a vasana, a latent impression, in the mind. Okay, And then he says, to be activated and experienced later, in this birth, or hidden, awaiting a future one. But by birth, he doesn't mean like the birth of your life, he means the birth of a moment. Of every moment so every moment this is birth death birth death okay so the action becomes a latent impression in the mind-body process okay and when the same feeling gets constellated again the consequence of your past action punching will be recognized as a potential groove you can take and so, if you punch somebody every time they say something to you that triggers you, and if you have kids, they know how to do this. Like, they're just, I don't know, God designed them this way, whatever your theory is. And, like, they know how to hit the button. And um, they hit the button, and then you can see the vasana. Right? Then you see the latent impression showing up, and then... It's not an action you're taking, it's a reaction. But your reactivity plants a seed, so the next time you feel that, you're going to do the same thing. It's called addiction. You see? Then he says, So long as this root source exists, its contents will always ripen into a birth, a life, and an experience. So long as you keep planting these latent impressions, they'll always ripen. Okay? In a way, what he's saying to you is, what kind of seeds are you planting? Right, Is that if every moment of perception is an action, he's calling, he's even calling perception an action, it's planting a seed. So, what kind of seeds are you planting? through your mode of perception and it's stunning okay so in a way you can see here how ethics and awareness are intimately tied together you see because it karma puts everything on your shoulders not the you that you think is you but the relative Psychological you. It's on your shoulders. That there's no big theory of a god that's gonna punish you one day. Instead, there's karma. Which basically just means you're responsible for your actions. Pretty simple. And that every action has a consequence. So then you need to pay attention to the kind of actions you're taking. Because those are the seeds you're planting. So, it's, it, this is ecology. It's not philosophy. Is that clear? Sort of? Um, I'll just keep going. This life will be marked by delight or anguish in proportion to the good or bad actions created by these stores of latent impressions. The wise sees suffering in all experience, whether from the anguish of impermanence or from latent impressions laden with suffering or from incessant conflict, as the fundamental qualities of nature vie for ascendancy. That takes a bit more explanation. But the last one that I want to read. But suffering that has not yet arisen can be prevented. Suffering that has not yet arisen can be prevented. How can it be prevented? So he said earlier, two ways one is being able to sit with what moves through awareness watch it from a place of stillness so you have something to anchor you in the present moment other than the grooves okay and then you can start to plant more wholesome grooves to use that language okay? practically speaking this means that anybody here who has A clean conscience, I'd say this is dangerous. (laughs) Really, it's dangerous to have a clean conscience because you don't really recognize the effect of your actions. See, and that's why Patanjali teaches non violence, not peace, because he assumes that there's going to be some level of violence in everything that you do. I don't know if anybody's ever had this experience where somebody who's vegetarian says to them, what right do you have to kill an animal? What right do you have to kill a chicken? What right do you have to kill, to take, to take a life? How do you respond to that? You see? But ethics in the yoga tradition is context dependent. Context-dependent, so you can't make a rule because you're going to break it a thousand times a day. But it motivates you to pay attention to the effect of your actions. So when somebody in downtown Toronto says, "What right do you have to kill an animal that you don't raise when you could go eat, you know, a locally grown tomato?" You can even find them anymore. <laughs> Not this year. Um, how do you respond? You see? And it's not like I'm challenging you to be vegetarian or something. But it's to pay attention to the effect of your actions. The way you spend money or you don't spend money. At the yoga festival, there was a panel. You know, I don't know if anybody... Was anybody there? The first night, like Mark Whitwell and all this but Someone said, Can you be a yogi and drive a BMW? This is a great question. Can you be a Yogi and drive a BMW? If you have a BMW, I don't know if anybody here has a BMW. You don't have to put your hand up. But if you have a BMW, it's more expensive to fix a BMW than it is to fix a Honda. It's more expensive. If you have uh, a Mercedes, it's probably more expensive to fix a Mercedes than it is a Toyota. I don't know. I'm assuming. Okay? The point is, is that when you start buying fancy things, you have to maintain them and take care of them. And a lot of people say things like, I can't practice because I'm so busy with work, got to make money to send my kid to a private school and seven lessons and drive my Range Rover. And like, you know, and you hear about what's going on in their life. And it's like, That's where you're investing your energy. Those are the seeds you're planting, right? And so part of the yoga practice is also renunciation. So, Patanjali is talking about it here on an internal level, but we all know, for those of you who have been studying the Yoga Sutra, he's just about to introduce ethics. He's leading up to it. And you can see how he leads up to it. He starts with meditation, and then he shows that what you're watching is the kind of culture you're making. Internal culture, body, and body politic. All at once. And it's totally dependent on your quality of awareness. Okay. Is this clear? Yeah. Okay. So my response to the person who can't practice is, sell your car. (laughs) You know, get a cheaper car. Then you Mm -hmm. won't have to earn that much money to keep that car going you know you can have a cheaper car there's other ways to get around and then there's renunciation there's letting go letting go because your identity is not wrapped up wrapped up in the outer persona that's created when you have a fancy car sorry (laughs) (laughs) have a fancy car but you know in spiritual communities, nobody likes to talk about this stuff. So. in the garage, we can.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, because what happens is, in a lot of spiritual communities, to keep the monastery going, you have to have a lot of wealthy people, and then you can't really talk about renunciation, um, because uh, you know you need the wealthy people to come. Yeah. So see that time and time again. Okay. Any questions? Comments?
2: In that case, the case of the car is I believe that people are also identified part of their identity mm-hmm. is the the car itself. What does that car say about the person I am or mm-hmm. or having a car like that? It's um I don't know
0: exactly what I'm trying to say, but... Uh, Yeah. It contributes Mm -hmm. to the self-image. But have you ever bought a fancy car? Have you ever bought a car? Yeah. Okay. You get excited about buying a car. Oh, this is... You know, we we had a pickup truck. We had to sell it because our son was getting big. He was, like, grabbing the steering wheel, (laughs) kicking the radio. Um, (laughs) Because, you know, he was like our family and glass <laughs> and uh, so we bought a Subaru you know but when we bought the Subaru it's not just buying a Subaru it's like oh this is a Subaru four-wheel drive and we spend most of our time out of the city and uh, four-wheel drive really made sense because the pickup truck was dangerous you know but I could watch as we were buying a Subaru that when you buy a Subaru you have a Subaru, right? Yeah. There's, like, there's a persona. You're like a Subaru person now. You know? And it's like, you know, you're, if you ever go to Boulder, Colorado, if you don't have a Subaru, you're not cool. It's like, you need to have a Subaru. And so, <laughs> the, but you can see how there are these identity traps, which are awareness traps, through the way that the items have also been marketed and we fall for it, okay? And in you falling for it, you reinforce it if you identify with it, you see? And this is a real snag. And I think earlier in September, one of your homework assignments was to take the thing that you most wanted and not get it. Do you remember we did that together? It's a really interesting practice because you can see how much we invest in desire, External, wanting, tanha, craving. Yeah. So when we were buying our car, I felt that way. And then what happens is you buy the car, and then a week later it's like rubber and metal gets you from one place to the next. It's just a car, and then the mind goes, right? What's the next thing that I can get? Because the car didn't do it. So now I need a lover. You know, the lover can't do it, now I need, I don't know, a cottage. And then like, then I'm going to write a book about it.
1: <laughs> Whatever.
0: So, how is this playing out in your own practice? Coarse and subtle. Being able to notice the object of meditation as you get entangled in the fluctuations of consciousness. Step number one. Step number two is then starting to notice the impermanence and emptiness of whatever it is that you're noticing. So tell me, how's it going? I've told you the theory. What's happening in your experience?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk
2: last, last week we talked about watching the thoughts as they arise and then as they were going away. Yeah. Step and, set. Yeah. and um, it sort of tweaked into me something that's sort of come in over the course of the week and um, during the practice. um The idea of um, having thoughts go away Mm -hmm. has touched into something I deal with a lot because I've got a lot of anxiety disorder in my family. Mm -hmm. Eons back, way back to the old country, apparently. Um, And so then, you know, I've become a little super conscious, (coughs) touching into perhaps a little anxious about the fact that I'm making these thoughts go away and then I'm finding, oh, well then... I'm I'm needing to sort of have some closure about these thoughts. But Mm -hmm. I've become, I've enjoyed, up until this point, Mm -hmm. allowing them to go away without having to feel a sense of closure or resolution. I I still believe that I don't need closure or resolution to to watch them go away. But Mm -hmm. then my, for lack of a better word, anxiety about making Uh them go away and repressing them, therefore, and having uh-huh. them come out in some other strange way, like my sister's head shakes now or something. That uh-huh. that has become a bit of a concern. And I'm not sure I understand what
0: you mean about closure.
2: Um,
0: like that you want to end this?
2: No, no. Um, in psychological terms, oh, I feel that way because my mom made me eat spinach. Or I feel this way...
0: Um, Oh, I understand. Tidy it up, rather sure. Than but, like, but, no but listen way. to what Patanjali is saying. All right. He doesn't say anything about meaning. Doesn't say anything about closure. Doesn't say anything about explanation. There's a total disinterest in the content. You could be talking about anxiety. You could be talking about a ladybug. Totally disinterested in the content. All he's, <coughs> all he's asking you to notice is the mechanism. Arising, passing away, not identifying with the content. And there's so much disinterest in the content that I think that um, um, there's a challenge here to our Western psychological way of understanding everything. And this idea of closure, this idea that if you go back into your past, you are going to get the explanation that's going to make the present symptom go away. Potentially saying that's just another pattern of consciousness. (coughs) And that is going to keep the anxiety going. So he's saying the anxiety is just feeling tone arising, being with it, it's impermanent. The more you invest in it, and the first way we invest in anxiety is by labeling it anxiety. And then if you have an anxiety disorder, you're going to get anxious about your anxiety and that's usually actually the greatest cause of anxiety is anxiety about your anxiety but you didn't have anxiety you had sensations feelings associations language right to drop into that feeling without labeling it okay but the mind doesn't want to so the mind escapes from the feeling gets a label has a story that goes along with the label, superimposes that on what's happening, wraps it up, and in the wrapping it up, you keep it there. Because you're not letting it unfold and pass away on its own. That's what Patanjali is saying. Give it a try. Try it.
2: Yeah, I use the word anxiety, but that's not mine. It could be anything. Right? Yeah, and kind of transpose that into mine, but okay.
0: Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. It's like you are, might be using the word anxiety, and it mm-hmm. might not be as accurate as you think. Oh,
2: no, that's...
0: Yeah, yeah. so uh, when I... Before I retired from being a psychotherapist a month ago, um, when people would say, I have anxiety, I'd say... Or people say, I'm clinically depressed. I don't know what that is. What is that? Or someone says, I'm depressed. I don't know what you're talking about. What is that? What does that feel like? What does that smell like? I don't know what depression is. The word doesn't mean anything. To try and drop through the pathology to the image, to the feeling, to the sensation that's actually there not our idea about what's there. Okay? And to watch the tendency to be an archaeologist, a psychic archaeologist, to go mine the past for an uh, an explanation that you unconsciously imagine is going to take the pattern away in the present. It's Woody Allen syndrome. and as therapists, we fall for that too. As therapists, we often think, we just get. So I'm frustrated working with somebody. And when I'm frustrated working with somebody, because it's not going anywhere, that's usually when I really start to get the theory wheel going. To try and find out. And where do I go? I go into their past. To try and find out what's happening that's giving rise to this in the present experience. But that is a totally modern Western thing to do. If you were living in a small, by a small river in West Africa and you had anxiety, uh, you'd probably wonder about the season or how you planted something or the way the dam was constructed. You wouldn't necessarily connect your anxiety To your family. You know, it it could have been something you said to somebody. Like, we're so reductionistic. (coughs) Um, One of my psychology teachers, James Hellman, calls this the myth of the family. That Western psychology is caught in the myth of the family. It's totally unconscious. And we actually believe that your psyche is structured in the first five years. Come on. Neuroscience like thinks that's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense.
1: Well I, I I just was gonna respond, I mean I think that they I think that the grooves can get set quite strongly in this uh-huh. five years and yeah. I think it is important to go back. Yeah. But to recognize that it is malleable and flexible and yeah. dynamic. Yeah. But I guess what I was sort of hearing is um, that we don't want to attach too much importance to what we see, and yet there are patterns that we see in things, and so depression or something (coughs) is an overarching term, it's a symbol Mm -hmm. of many things, but Mm -hmm. uh, I think there is still
0: value in seeing Patanjali is saying that. That's what he calls the gross form. There's value in recognizing a pattern. Psychotherapy at its best, this is what it's doing. It's helping you see a pattern. And patterns, by their nature, are historical. Mm -hmm. But Patanjali is going further. He's saying that there actually really isn't a pattern. That you are superimposing the pattern. That... That's just the way the mind works. It can't recognize things that are not in a pattern. So he's saying, like, the next level of responsibility is to see how you're constructing the pattern. That's why I'm talking about how culturally the idea of going back into your familial past is a cultural construction, very much related to Sigmund Freud. Okay? Like, before that, people didn't do that. That's not the first place you would go when you're anxious. It's a it's a very recent phenomenon. And we believe it. Do you see what I mean? Like it's unexamined. <coughs> okay. So that's what he's saying here. The subtle form <coughs> is forget the content. Just watch what's there arising, passing away. When you pick it up, it causes suffering. If you treat it as permanent, it causes suffering because it's impermanent. And last... It has no substantiality, neither do you. That's like three ducks in a row, boom, 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 end of suffering. So like whenever they're suffering, just hit it with the one, two, three, all done. But for some of you, your meditation practice is not at that level. You can't watch things as impermanent. You can't watch things as empty of substantiality because there's still too much distraction. So then you're just working with the course. Which is not bad. Okay, It just means that your main job is to notice when there's a pattern and to become disinterested in it and to come back to present experience. Okay, If there's a pattern where there's some trauma that's trying to be metabolized, it's going to show up as a pattern over and over and over and it's going to be relentless until you work with it but you can only work with it in the present moment you can't work with it in the past and oftentimes you don't even know what caused it you might have a good story but you know there's somebody who I worked with who had something happen to her in the past okay she confronted the person who uh traumatized her and they said they didn't do it okay and then people in the family became so anxious, because people were really split. They could imagine that this happened to her, but they could also imagine that it didn't happen to her. And then she became confused, because she didn't really know whether or not this really happened. Honestly, she couldn't tell if it really happened. And um, So she was reading all this good feminist literature to support the idea that it did happen. okay, and, uh, But in her heart, she was a bit confused. And this went on for years and years and years, until she realized that whatever the cause was, it actually didn't matter. The symptoms of it are happening now, and that's all mm-hmm. she can pay attention to. She, she wants the great creation story. You see, it's theology. She wants the creation story to create a story that's permanent to take away the impermanence. It's not there. It's not there. And this is what the Truth and Reconciliation Committee was trying to do in South Africa. Right? It's like, forget the cause. What happened? And the power of just being able to express how you feel now without adding theory to it is what, it's what creates the conditions for healing. This is what's so powerful about that practice. Truth and reconciliation means the truth is relative. You don't know, but you can speak the truth now of what's happening, even though you don't know the truth, truth. And that's why historians have such a hard time in academia now. Because you don't know. <laughs> It's fascinating. Coarse and subtle. Coarse and subtle. It's very helpful. And both can happen simultaneously. So some of you are like subtle in some areas where you're really able to watch impermanence and and real calm and you're coarse in some areas too. There are certain patterns that arise that not so good at working with, and um, now you have a way to work with us. So don't get too high on your horse. Is that the thing? <laughs> Is that a thing? Or I just make that up? <laughs> so that's why the homework last week was to not make your <coughs> mind up about anything.
1: It was very helpful with um, sort of anxiety prevention, yeah uh, uh-huh. uh, and how uh, uh, as soon as my mind started to create. I speak of being a faculty and I was already getting ready for a war and so as soon as I noticed that I really had to find out <laughs> how it was going to be in the conflict and I was going, cool. and I didn't to really go back to trying to figure out how it would go just in the moment speaking because it was just fine, worked out just fine. Mm-hmm. So I spared mm-hmm. myself a lot of tension and anxiety yeah. and whatever else and being lost completely in, in the moment, in the shower with someone else. Yeah. So it really helped just being... Yeah. You brought the dead
0: end sign up here. Yes, yes. Yeah.
1: And today's talk was quite interesting because I drove (laughs) a (laughs) BMW. And uh, it's time to buy another one within a year's time. Yes. And another (laughs) of means, well, how am I choosing a BMW again? uh, Today's talk is really interesting. (laughs) 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 I'm going to get a used BMW. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm noticing that the, in, the internal practice, yes, I'm all with that, I guess the renunciation of social action. I'm, I'm just noticing how somewhere in there they're yeah. doing something that doesn't, or yeah. not noticing, or yeah. I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. this, it feels like it's where to go up or grow to, or I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, i
0: worked with a couple for, for many years, doing meditation with them. And they sent me an email once and it just said, uh, um fuck it, we decided we're getting the
1: BMW. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and like they love that car. They keep it so clean and it's great, they love it. <coughs> yeah, I wish more people would love their cars that much. Um I wanna end with poem that okay? It's the poem we worked with last week. So uh, the homework last week was when something strong is showing up, to not make your mind up about it. Simple. And the interesting thing is that often a solution could show up, and a, a new idea could show up. But just don't make up your mind about it, because the first ideas you have about it are usually the latent impressions blossoming. Okay, It's an interesting thing to play around with. That practice comes from this poem I've been reading by Jim Harrison, from a wonderful book that I highly recommend, called The Theory and Practice of Rivers. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow, to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. So there's your homework, swallowing yourself in ceaseless flow, being a river. So, let's finish chanting. Mm